This is the Epilog Audio Experience. Quick disclaimer for a podcast, the SOS show, points discussed in this podcast should not be relied upon as conclusive medical advice in any case. The host shall not be a substitute for proper medical professional. You must seek professional help in case of any requirement. Thank you. James R. Doty is an educator, compassion researcher, neuroscientist, entrepreneur and philanthropist. He is an adjunct professor at Stanford University School of Medicine and the founding director of the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. In fact, he was the chairperson at the Dalai Lama Foundation. His research work centers around the neuroscience of compassion, empathy and altruism. and how these attributes not only positively impact others but have a significant impact on one's health and longevity he is the founder of happy ai a data driven tech startup that uses artificial intelligence and neuroscience to generate a personalized virtual friend to help people with stress anxiety and depression Hi James welcome to our podcast the SOS show and uh, thank you for being part of our show and taking our time uh, and thank you for being here uh it's a pleasure to be with you it's a pleasure to, and honor to be with you james especially because you have uh, you have worked with the dalai lama if i'm not wrong you are the chairperson in his foundation the the dalai lama fund foundation and uh, i was like wow you know i mean uh, let me just see that what did the dalai lama tell him well actually um i was the chairman of the dalai lama mm. foundation for several mm. years Hmm. And um uh but I have actually got to know a lot of uh, spiritual and religious leaders as friends or as advisors um mm-hmm. including uh Amma the hugging saint uh Sri Sri Ravi Shankar Yes Sad Guru Yeah my favorite Radhana Swami Wow Sri M <laughs> Daji Chidananda uh Archbishop Tutu before he passed, Tiknath Han before he passed, Swagol Rinpoche before he passed. Yeah. Uh so uh uh as well as Pope Francis, Eckhart Tolle, Byron Katie. Wow. So uh I uh I know a lot of these folks. Wow, wow, and I'm like such a big fan of most of their work. Uh how was it How is it interacting James before I before I actually, you know, get to the kind of work you're doing? Uh, how is it interacting sitting next to the Dalai Lama and Tiknath Han do you feel something very special well i think um any time you're with an evolved spiritual leader mm. the reality is that uh they live above the dogma uh they're mm. able to immediately see the core of who you are mm. uh and uh if you're authentic uh if you care if you love if you're compassionate mm. and uh and you feel this sense of unconditional love uh, mm. it's interesting because a lot of people ask me how is it possible that as an example they may be a follower of one of these gurus for 15 or 20 years but suddenly mm. i walk up and i immediately have this rapport and rela- relationship with them yeah and uh part of it is uh uh i'm not asking for anything do nor do i want anything 
And also, uh, I'm not necessarily a believer, except in the fundamental aspect of love, caring, and compassion. Um, So I think interacting with somebody who doesn't worship them or have this uh, view of them being highly elevated or above them, if you will, from a spiritual uh, perspective allows them actually to really be themselves. And all of these individuals are human beings. Hmm. Tell me, James, why do people want to follow the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh or Eckhart Tolle or Sadhguru? What is it that is lacking in their life that they are fulfilling? Well, uh, I guess uh, one person's lacking is uh, another person's fulfillment. Uh, uh, As an example, I I mean, I'm not a follower of anyone, or perhaps Mm. you could say uh, I believe in everything and I believe in nothing. Mm. Um, But people who follow these individuals, uh, one, uh, are looking for an anchor in their lives that Mm. gives them community that gives them ritual that gives them a moral ethical framework and uh, that's what many of these people do and of course all of them uh, espouse goodness and uh, everybody wants to be connected to something that they perceive is bigger than themselves that they can contribute to and uh, that gives them a sense of purpose and meaning do you think that James that they that humanity the phase that we are going through is a phase of vacuum or emptiness that arises from right now the kind of uh, the kind of uh, polarization that the world is going through and uh, a spiritual leader can give them that anchor well when you say can yes In an ideal world, they should. Mm. But of course, what happens, unfortunately, is that a lot of uh, individuals, gurus, um, and it can be whether it's Hindu, whether it's Muslim, whether it's Christian, uh, can uh, manipulate uh, their followers Mm. and do very evil things. Yes. And imply that their religion or their practice is superior than others. And of course, this is a complete distortion of any religious practice. And once that occurs, it's no longer a religion. It's a cult of people following an individual who uh, has distorted the message. Essentially, all religions at their core um, try to create a world of uh, everyone recognizing the other, not looking down on anyone, being able to look at another individual eye to eye and accepting everyone and not being judgmental. Uh, You know, it's fascinating where, as an example, there are Christian nationalists who want to kill uh, homosexuals, want to kill trans people uh they're racist and uh uh and then you know and these are of course extreme people uh but you have those extreme people in every uh faith unfortunately you know you look at a subset of hindus in india who want to kill all the muslims you see muslims in uh 
different parts of the world who uh, want to kill an apostate or somebody who's renounced their uh, Islamic faith. Mm. Uh, you know, it's everywhere. Mm. The only thing that um, you can um, approach these people with is since is fundamentally uh, openness, love, and acceptance, and um, uh, and you can't. You know, fighting against these types of people uh, doesn't get you anything. You have to understand how they've been manipulated and uh, not denigrate them, uh, but be able to respect them enough to have a conversation. And hopefully through that conversation, uh, they'll at least listen and perhaps change their mind. But again, uh, many humans are weak. They don't have... um, the ability for critical thinking uh, yeah. and you create a, fe- a fear narrative. What this yeah. does is for weak people, it causes them to want to find a leader who will solve all their problems, or at least who says they will. And of course, this is the problem with Donald Trump. Uh, you can't mm. imagine a more incompetent uh, buffoon, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, he has a subset of people who he's been able to brainwash, yeah. and nominally intelligent people, many of them, uh, who are so blind uh, and so lacking in critical thinking and so prejudiced, uh, they'll accept anything. And, uh, uh, of course, you know, here's an individual who I don't know of one attribute that he has that I would want my children to emulate. Uh, but there are others in the world. Uh, you look at uh, the dictator in Poland, effectively, uh, or uh, I mean in Hungary. Um, but they're everywhere. Uh, and uh, this is not new. Uh, yeah. To date, there has never been a dictatorship that has survived, right? Every one of them ultimately tumbles. Yeah. And this should restore your faith in humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they may get away with certain types of actions, but at some point the populace rebels and they're crushed. And um, that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should, and I'm not saying to run and kill people, but what I am saying is no one should have to be under the yoke of a dictator. Tell me, James, about your interest. You have authored a book about the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. What did you find? Well, so that was never meant to be a scientific treatise. Uh, mm. If you want that, you can look at the book that I was the senior editor of called uh, The Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science. Mm. Uh, Into the Magic Shop was a memoir about my youth and uh, the challenges that I faced and how meditative practices mm. uh, helped me overcome those challenges as well as learning Uh, visualization uh, techniques, Mm. uh, which allowed me to believe in myself and Mm. uh, a belief that I had endless possibilities. Mm. What happens to people, uh, and in some way it relates to people who accept dictatorships, uh, many people want to look outside of themselves for someone to tell them what to do or to manifest things for them. And uh, or to look outside of themselves for happiness. And the reality is that each of us has uh, immense amounts of power. 
but we have given our agency away to these outside forces. Uh, and the reality is that each of us has immense strength and power within ourselves. And um, we just need to recognize that. Tell me, so how does a meditative practice and a visualization practice from your experience get you connected to your own higher self, if, if, if I may use that word? Well, I think the first thing is to understand that we're all connected. And this concept of oneness, uh, I think, is very important to accept. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. First of all, every one of us has an internal critic yeah. that's telling us we're not smart enough, we're not good enough, we don't deserve love, we're not worthy. And that is an evolutionary holdover because on the savannah in Africa, and you have to remember our DNA has not changed in the last 200 years. Yeah. Th uh, threat uh, was... Uh, everywhere. And you had to respond to threat. And so we were highly attuned to things around us that would cause threat. And then those would get embedded into our subconscious so that we were attuned mm. to them and responded to them. Unfortunately, uh, the nature of how we evolved results in negative things sticking to us. If somebody tells you you're not good, if if uh, you repeat these things to yourself, then uh, these things get amplified over and over again, and it becomes this constant narrative. Yeah. So I think the first thing for me was to understand that reality. Yeah. And once you understand that reality and also that you can change that narrative, yeah. well, then everything else changes. Yeah. Um, so... One of the first things was to, one, because of my own traumatic background growing up, yeah. uh, I was essentially, I was in a state of, of fear and anxiety because my life was chaotic and I never knew when something was going to happen. So my sympathetic nervous system was always activated. And when that's the case, your muscles are tense. You're always looking around, uh, waiting for something to happen. So a couple things occur. One is you are not able to attend or be present. You're constantly looking out for some event that may occur in the future. And as a result, you miss what's right in front of you. And what I mean by that is connection with others um, is critically important, but you have to be present with the other. And you cannot do that if your sympathetic nervous system is constantly activated and you're uh, tense, ready to uh, run away or uh, uh, survive in some way. The other thing, when that system is activated, it separates you from your executive control areas. And what I mean by that is it limits you. You don't have access to memories, prior experiences. You're just trying to survive. So in terms of being creative, being thoughtful, being productive, you're very limited when you're in that state. So when you're able to change that narrative and uh, if you will, um, retake the power that's within you, things start to change. Because when you're hypercritical of yourself, you're hypercritical of all the people around you. And you're not seeing the world through a clear lens. Once you start understanding that, one, you're suffering. Two, you deserve to be loved. You deserve 
uh, to be cared for, that you are in fact worthy, then you start looking through the world through a different lens and you see that everyone on some level is suffering. Everyone deserves kindness. Everyone uh, should not be judged. And uh, But that takes work and it takes time. Uh, but once you're able to do that, uh, your whole world will change, but it will change in a variety of different ways. One, your physiology will work at its best. Uh, once you're no longer stressed or anxious, you uh, uh, activate your executive control areas. You have a lot more uh, resources. Uh, you are much more relaxed. You're open. You're inclusive. You're thoughtful. Uh, your cardiac function's improved. Your immune system's improved. The production of inflammatory proteins has decreased. The uh, expression of inflammatory um, uh, proteins and also uh, release of cortisol is decreased. So it has a huge, very profound effect. Uh, and of course, then that translates into it having an effect on other people. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Tell me, James, you are the founding director of the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. Compassion and altruism. What do they do to us? Why are they important? Well, I think probably we should go through a definition of these different terms, including mm. empathy, sympathy, pity. So compassion is recognition of the suffering of another mm. with a motivational desire to alleviate that suffering. That mm. doesn't necessarily mean you're able to. It means you want to. Mm. Uh, empathy is different because compassion requires action. Uh, empathy is simply taking on the emotional state of another, standing in another's shoes. And what I mean by that is you can have empathic joy. It has nothing to do with suffering. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and it doesn't require any action. Mm. You were just taking on the other's emotional state. Mm -hmm. Now, that's different than sympathy. That is not an affective response. It's a cognitive response. Mm -hmm. So you look at another and you say, oh, that's unfortunate, but it's really not connecting you with the other person. You're not experiencing their pain. You're outside of that. Yeah. You're just commenting that it's unfortunate that they're experiencing that. And again, yeah. it doesn't require any action. Mm -hmm. And of course, pity is similar, except it's looking through the lens of you are superior and you were looking down mm. on the person. Mm. And uh, so those are really the main differences between those terms. So when we say, uh, that when you are saying that, okay, it's a compassion and altruism research, uh, how, how is that enhancing humanity if more people become more compassionate and altruistic? Well, I think you've answered your own question. I mean, it, you, we talked about gurus, at least in their purest form, uh, mm. they are promoting compassion. Every mm. religion is based on compassion. Mm. And uh, uh, when you are able to, one, be kind to yourself, and two, uh, interact with others in a compassionate way, it not only improves your physiology, it improves theirs. You know, the Dalai Lama said... Uh, being compassionate is the only um, selfish action you can do because when you're compassionate to another, you benefit. He also said, if you want to be happy, uh, uh, be compassionate. If you want others to be happy, be compassionate. 
the profound effect being compassionate has on another uh, is extraordinary, and you and it also affects you in a similar way. Uh, one of the definitions I didn't give was altruism. Yeah. Since you brought it up again, so altruism is um, intervention for towards another. Uh, which puts you at risk. See, a lot of people, philanthropists, use the term altruism, but it's not true at all. Uh, the nature of altruism is one in which, as an example, let's say you're on a bridge and you see a child fall into the river, mm. you jump in to save the child. You are putting yourself at risk of drowning. Uh, or uh, you run out uh, in front of a car uh, that's about to uh, hit a child and you pull the child out of harm's way. That's altruistic. Uh, giving money to charity uh, is not altruistic. So does altruism and compassion work in today's world? Well, we wouldn't be here unless it did. Period. If those attributes did not function in the vast majority of cases, we could not survive as a species. Mm. So they do. They do. 95% of people are kind and compassionate. It is a very small percentage of people who manipulate the system for their benefit. Mm. And we have to address that at some point. Tell me, James, what is your happy AI about? You're the founder of happy AI. Well, uh, I was just earlier talking about the mental health crisis. Mm. As you probably know, there is an epidemic of stress, anxiety, and depression mm. as a result. Mm. Um, for a large percentage of people, they have absolutely zero resources or access to mental health care. The interesting thing, though, is that po most people who are stressed and anxious, if they're able to communicate with someone who yeah. is non-judgmental, uh, yeah. thoughtful, offers realistic advice, give them techniques, that will actually have a huge impact on dissipating those uh, feelings and prevent them from spiraling down into rumination and depression. And of course, most of these things occur at night when you no longer are distracted. So what we have done is we've created a phone app that, uh, or it could be a desktop app as well, that has the ability to assess your emotional state utilizing um, facial expression, uh, voice analysis, and converting speech to text to understand the context of a conversation. Mm. That is then connected to a conversational AI that we have uh, developed that has been primed with psychology and compassion-focused therapy and then that is connected to a human-like avatar, which has the ability to uh, change its um, facial expression and voice uh, to be empathic to the user. And uh, it works seamlessly. And actually, it's quite extraordinary. This is not a cartoon avatar. This is an avatar that uh, uh, looks like you or me. Mm. And uh, it has facial expressions. It responds um, uh, 
with an empathic voice and tone. And you can go to the happy.ai, and that's H-A-P-P-I, not Mm H-A-P-P-Y. So H-A-P-P-I.ai, and you can um, see on the website what we're doing. And there's a video there that will show you uh, the avatar. And and to date, there is no one who uh, in this field who has created anything like this. Uh, you do see comments that, well, it uses AI, but these are typically limited conversations that require you to type or chat bots. They may have an avatar sitting there, but it's not one you're actually talking to or communicating with directly like a human being. You're just typing in and the avatar just sits there. Uh, and then there are others that uh, may call you or have a AI call you, and then you talk to them. But again, there's no avatar involved. And frankly, at least the ones I have interacted with, and I looked at this field a fair amount, um, they're not realistic at all. Um, So I think that for underserved populations, I think that if you look in countries like, uh, or, or parts of the world like Asia, India, and the Middle East, where uh, mental health, uh, talking about mental health is taboo, being able to talk to a quote-unquote trusted friend is a completely different situation. So I think that um, it could be extraordinarily powerful and offer uh, a lot of benefit to people. But again, I'm not promoting this as therapy. This really is talking to a friend. And again, greatest way to dissipate uh, fear, anxiety, stress is simply talking to another person. Now, this may be an avatar, but what we've seen with the uh, adolescents who are used to avatars, they have no problem connecting and uh, actually uh, engaging. And in fact, if you look at Japan, uh, uh, they have actual robots, and they may not be primed with AI, but robots that interact uh, with elderly individuals, and the elderly individuals actually look forward to talking to them. Mm. Great, great. And just tell me one thing, which I have been trying to ask you, is that do you think a Dalai Lama can survive a corporate world? Well, I think, uh, no, I mean, that. but uh, who would expect him to? I, I mean, it's like me asking you if you could survive in a Tibet monastery. Probably not. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, his whole life, you know, since childhood, uh, I think he, since he's four or five years old, has been spent in a Tibet monastery or isolated with monks. Now, certainly, he is much more westernized than any monk uh, and understands how the world works, but that's far different than uh, thinking that he could survive in a corporate environment. But that brings up an interesting point. There is now an immense amount of data that demonstrates a ruthless corporate environment uh, will fail or at least has not maximized their benefit or their ability to thrive. Because when you have employees that are intimidated uh, by fear narratives, they're less productive, they're less creative, 
uh, they uh, exhibit a lot of what we call mind-body disconnects, uh, headache, nausea, uh, low back pain, uh, diarrhea, a whole variety of uh, symptoms that are essentially the body's response to stress and anxiety. Well, this has a massive uh, cost in terms of health care. As an example, at Google, where you have employees uh, typically between 25 and 45, they don't have heart disease per se, or they're not, uh, uh, they don't have diabetes. Their problems primarily have to do with mind-body disconnects. And uh, for a self-insured company like Google, that's extraordinarily expensive. Plus, it's expensive in terms of human resource costs. Yeah. Uh, if somebody won't take a job, uh, a promotion, or will or is looking for another job constantly, and you have ra- high rates of turnover, that's also very costly. So you look at the combination of uh, lack of engagement, decreased productivity, fundamental unhappiness, healthcare costs, human resource costs. Um, that comes uh, at a huge, huge price for those organizations. Conversely, if you integrate uh, compassion and kindness uh, into the corporate yeah. or leadership environment, it does just the opposite. You cannot pay people enough to work if they're happy at work and love their jobs, period. Uh, I mean, uh, people will yeah. stay longer. They're excited. They're more creative. They're not driven by fear. And uh, uh, so that type of an environment benefits everyone. And I think the corporate world is more and more recognizing this. We get asked yeah. to uh, create programs for a variety of corporate entities. And by every measure, um, uh, it works. And it's just yeah. like it works on a personal level. It works at a corporate level. It works yeah. in the healthcare environment. Uh, and so it's very powerful. And frankly, it doesn't cost anything to be kind and compassionate. So the Lai Lama might just survive the corporate world, the new corporate world that we think we are heading towards. And hopefully we are heading towards, which is more kinder and compassionate. Well, I, you know, I, I mean, his mere presence actually uh, impacts a lot of people and um makes them realize the power of compassion. The problem is that one dose isn't the cure, right? I, I mean, hanging out with the Dalai Lama one day make make you feel kind and compassionate and open for one day, but you need this dose of compassion in regard to um, an example. You need it every day. And if you have people around you who are that way, then it has a positive impact on you because it makes you feel better and it makes those around you feel better. So what is that one thing that all of us can do daily to make ourselves compassionate and people around us compassionate too? Well, I think, uh, first of all, you have to realize the power that you have within yourself. And people forget that every one of us every day has the capacity to make one person's life better, period. That can be simply saying hello. It could be helping somebody uh, carry their groceries to the car. It could be uh, paying for somebody's dinner or groceries if they don't have enough money. It can be holding the hand of a child who's scared. There are a whole variety of ways that 
we can improve the lives of another, sometimes just a word. Um, and it's extraordinarily powerful. And oftentimes we don't appreciate how either our actions or our words can have an effect. And that's both for good or bad. Do you know how many adults I've met who have said, well, my father told me I would be nothing. They've carried mm -hmm. it their whole lives. Yeah. Right? Versus if somebody, uh, especially when you're a child, says, you know, you are incredible. You're going to accomplish so much. I love you. And if yeah. you ever need me, I'll be there for you. That changes everything. And yeah. we have the gift to give that. And so we have to keep in mind that power we have through our actions, through our words, to have a positive impact on people. And it again, it doesn't cost anything. Uh, uh, and it also makes us recognize that we should be appreciative and have gratitude uh, as we live our lives. Uh, we're not owed anything. You know, if I look at my own life, uh, I mean, my life has been a gift, even though it's been extraordinarily challenging. Yeah. And I think if every one of us looks around, you know, I mean, over half of the world's population lives on less than $2.50 a day. Well, <laughs> I'm extraordinarily blessed, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the problem is there's such a tendency in, in the capitalist world to look at others who have more than you. Yeah. And you believe that if those people, because they have more than you, and whether it's money, position, or power, that somehow they're happier. And my own experience has been, and I've been around a lot of these people, they're some of the most unhappy, miserable people in the world because yes. they're empty. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they try to fill that emptiness by people looking up to them because we're in a capitalist society that uh, believes having stuff uh, makes you happy. And so they're trying to fill this chronic emptiness. The only thing that fills that emptiness is to be of service. Yeah. Uh, so money is not meant to hoard. Money is meant to share and make the lives of individuals better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Dr. James Toting. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for the work that you are doing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you. I hope our paths cross and we're able to meet in person. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. So do you guys think that the Dalai Lama can survive in the corporate world? What are your thoughts on compassion and altruism? Do you think it's going to work in today's polarized world? How do you intend to become more compassionate and altruistic? Connect with us on our Insta handle, there's our show pod. And of course, you can find me on LinkedIn. And don't worry too much. Life is short. 